I'd like for you to turn to the Old Testament book of 2 Samuel. And I'm reading from, I'll be reading from the 18th chapter. And you'd need a Bible on your lap because I'm going to be working through this um, chapter and into chapter 19. I want to talk today about a, a difficult subject, and that is preparing our families for the unbearable. Preparing for the unbearable. Our attention has been riveted in the last few weeks, especially upon Herzegovina, Bosnia-Herzegovina, what was once Yugoslavia, the great, that great nation that's been ravaged by war. And there are a lot of uh, stories that have come out of that uh, time, out of this time of strife and, and turmoil there, for example. The story of a young couple who had about an eight-year-old daughter. The father was drafted into the army and was killed right at the beginning of the fighting. And this little girl one day went down to the place to collect water. She took a... a, a, a uh, container to gather water in Sarajevo. And there was a certain hour and a certain place to gather the water, and she went at the time. It was uh, assigned, and a sniper's bullet found her and killed her. Her mother went mad, so that every day at the hour, she would go down to the market where the water was collected, calling her name. And the anguish of her cry was such that everybody got quiet and still and the snipers put down their weapons while she was there. And everybody stood in the awe of the unbearable. A few weeks later, she took her own life. I watched as a man was interviewed a couple of weeks ago whose son was in one of those helicopters that was downed in Iraq by friendly fire, so-called. And this father used the word. He told about his son who volunteered for that mission, thinking he could make a difference in that part of the world. And the father said, to give up a son is just a horrible and terrible thing. But to know that he was killed by his own is absolutely unbearable. I want you to go back in time with me to hear these words by this man. I am now the most miserable man in all the world. If how I feel was equally distributed among the whole human family, you would not find a cheerful face on the face of the earth. I cannot remain the same. I will have to die to get better. Abraham Lincoln during the height of the Civil War. I want you to go further back in time with me and we'll step into the life of a grand man by the name of David. He hasn't laughed for months. I don't think David laughed after Bathsheba again. And the last part of David's life is a study in human tragedy, humiliation, and shame. Perhaps he felt so guilty for what he had done, he thought it would be inappropriate to ever laugh at life again. He did it all. There was lust, adultery, conception. There was murder. 
And he falsified his records in the eyes of his people and in the eyes of God. And by the sheer grace of his people, he was allowed to remain their leader. But his life became haunted by his family. Born into his family was a young man by the name of Absalom. Oh, what a charmer he was, handsome and strong. He had coal-black hair like the raven's wing, long and full. But this young man, Absalom, was hurt by his father's neglect. You see, David was too busy with the kingdom. He was too busy to give Absalom what Absalom needed. And so Absalom became the product of the tutors. Now they tutored him well, but they were not like a father to him. As time passed, his life was further diminished by the rape of his half-sister Tamar. And he was enraged at the passivity of his father who refused to bring justice to the rapist because he was a member of the dynasty. David took a kind of hands-off approach, don't make waves, and Absalom hated it. And so great chasms of mistrust developed between Absalom and his father David and those chasms widened one day when Absalom took justice in his own hands and he saw to it that the rapist was killed. Then he fled. And he went to the home of his paternal grandparents, and there he lived and was further indulged. The weeks passed into months, and the months passed into years. And David, because perhaps of sheer guilt, would send little overtures toward his son in the other place. And finally one day, half forgiven, Absalom returns home. But things cannot be the same again. He is not the fair-haired boy of his father. His father mistrusts him, distrusts him, and so he keeps him at bay. But because of the authority he had as the son of his father, he took that authority and he ran wild with it. And he developed a group of men loyal to him. He turned their hearts against his father David, and he led an insurrection against the throne. Not wanting to kill his own flesh and blood, David abdicates the throne of Israel and flees himself. He leaves the palace. And now in a stroke of irony, Absalom ascends to the throne, and he takes the throne of his father, although he did not earn it, and he certainly did not deserve it. But time passes, and time has a way of changing things, and the men loyal to David begin to move against Absalom, and they put him on the run, and David returns to the palace, but the inevitable is there. There must come a day in the civil war when the final battle of all battles is fought, and the one who is to be the permanent king of Israel will be determined. And so the battle, the armies arrayed for the battle and got prepared. Now David, before the commanders leave for the battle, gathers those commanders together and he says to them, for whatever reason, he says, I want to win, I want the throne, but I want my son and I don't want anybody to lay a hand on him. I don't want anybody to harm him. I want you to keep my son, protect my son. Now Absalom is an enigma. He is confusing to everybody. 
He angered some people. He enraged one man. His name was Joab. Now Joab was David's trusted confidant and the leader of his military from the beginning. And he's a ruthless man in his own rights, but he loves David. And he's watched the whole scenario unfold. He has seen Absalom's indulgence. He has seen Absalom lead the insurrection against David, his commander. And he hates Absalom. And so when he tells him, let my son be protected, it just passes Joab by because he has one purpose, one intent. He's going to find Absalom. And he's going to kill him. And now we're in chapter 18. And verse 14, here's here's what leads up to this. As the battle begins, as the battle continues, Absalom is riding his mule and this long black hair is waving in the wind and it gets caught in the fork of a tree. You've heard the story. And there he's hanging by the hair of his head from the fork of this tree when the men of Joab and David come. And Joab says, Joab does this in verse 14, I will not waste time here with you. So he took three spears in his hand and thrust them through the heart of Absalom while he was yet alive in the midst of the oak. They disposed of his body. In the meantime, get this picture, David's back at the palace. He knows not what's happening. He's really not concerned about the battle. He's concerned about his son. And something's happening in David's heart, in David's life, I think that happens in every parent's life as they get older. He began to see his son in a different way. He began to see his son in a new perspective. It happens to all of us. He began to realize that he was part of Absalom's problem. He was aware of his of his guilt. He was aware of his neglect. He was aware of the failure, of his failure as a father. And he wanted his son back. He wanted a relationship with him. He wanted to hold him again. He wanted his son alive. He's not aware of what's going on. But having disposed of the body of Absalom, there are two men there who who come, one of them wants to bring news to David. Tell him of the victory. He can't wait to get back and tell the king. He's the permanent king of Israel now, bringing good news. But Joab says, that's in verse 19, you're not the man to do this. There's a Cushite there. And so Joab tells the Cushite, you go and tell David what has happened. And so the Cushite begins to run to Jerusalem to bring the news. And the other's there begging to go and tell the news. So finally he just says in verse 22, go ahead and do it. And so he takes off. So we got a foot race headed toward the palace between two men. The Cushite is leading and the other's following and he overtakes him and is the first there. Now what you have back at the palace is a man facing an unbearable situation waiting for the news to come. It would be like you when you heard that plane went down and you think some of your loved one was on it. You don't know if they survived or not. You're just waiting for the news. It would be like you who heard on the television that a 
storm has hit a town and many were killed. You have loved ones there, but all the lines of communication are down. You don't know whether they're alive or dead, whether they're safe or harmed, unbearable. Anybody like you as a parent who has taken your child to the doctor, the child has obviously been ill for quite a while, and he calls you at home and says, I'd like an appointment with you this afternoon at 3 o'clock. I want to discuss your child's illness. And you can tell in the tone of voice that things are not good, news is not the best. And these hours seem like eternities between the time he calls and the time of the, the appointment unbearable. And I want you to read with me now, the, the, just let the narrative speak for itself in verse 23. Verse 24. Now David was sitting between the two gates and the watchman went up to the roof of the gate by the wall, raised his eyes and looked and behold a man running by himself. And the watchman called and told the king, and the king said, If he's by himself, there's good news in his mouth. Oh, it, positive thinking. I'm, I, I'm, I'm, I'm naming it and claiming it. I've got to have faith that everything's all right. Positive thinking is going to be good news. If he's by himself, everything is all right. He came nearer and nearer. Then the watchman saw another man running. And the watchman called to the gatekeeper and said, Behold, another man running by himself. And the king said, This one is bringing good news. And the watchman said, I think the running of the first one is like the running of Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok. And the king said, This is a good man, and he comes with good news. And Ahimaaz called and said to the king, All is well. And he prostrated himself before the king, with his face to the, to the ground, and he said, Blessed be the, is the Lord your God, who has delivered up the men who lifted their hands against my Lord the King. Who cares if the flag is flying or not? What about my son Absalom? It's more important to me to know that he's all right than I have the throne. And the king said, Is it well with young man Absalom? And Ahimaaz answered, When Joab sent the king's servant and your servant, I saw a great tumult, but I didn't know what it was. I can't tell you what happened. I just know there was a big battle. Can't say what happened. Then the king said, Turn aside and stand here. So he turned aside and stood there. And behold, the Cushite arrived. And the Cushite said, Let the Lord the king receive good news, for the Lord has freed you this day from the hand of all those who rose up against you. Then the king said to the Cushite, Is it well with the young man Absalom? And the Cushite answered, Let the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up against you for evil be as that young man. Now the Hebrew Bible ends chapter 18 with verse 32. Because what follows is the, is the graphic narrative of one who has now entered into the darkness of the unbearable. Listen to the narrative. And the king was deeply moved. Take a pencil and underline that word. 
and went up to the chamber above the gate and wept. And thus he said as he walked, O my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you, O Absalom, my son, my son. And there's a wail like the wail of the woman on the streets of Sarajevo. Oh, Absalom, my son. You can hear it down the street. Everything gets silent in the anguish of it. Oh, Absalom. I can't believe this is David saying this. He's the man who wrote, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. But this is worse than death. This is unbearable. And if you've underlined that word deeply moved, let me tell you what that word means in the Hebrew. It means to shudder, to quake, to convulse. Now David is in the tower and he's convulsing. Wrote Horatio Maltby. It is an agitation deeply rooted in emotion, like one writhing in birth pains. He's writhing in birth pains. He says it's literal trembling at terrible news. It's the shuddering of despair. The Hebrew word is ragah, ragah. He is agonizing like a, like a woman in the pangs of birth. Did you see that man on television the other day? His son, little child, killed at that bus stop and somewhere in, in the Middle East. They brought his casket out. That father was wailing. He reached over and tried to wrestle the casket from them. He dug his fingers like claws into the casket, wailing. Then he stepped aside, bent down on the ground, crouched as a, as a Middle Easterner would, put his hands over his head and wailed. Ragah! Up into the chambers did David, and he sang as he went, O Absalom! I want you back, Absalom. I wrecked my life. I ruined it. And you got caught in the middle of it. And you were hurt because of my neglect. Oh, Absalom, please come back. Oh, Absalom, oh, Absalom, you will never come back. Ragah, unbearable. And Alexander White puts it like this. A terrible cry that came out of the chambers over the gate was the love of a broken-hearted father. But the agony of that cry, the innermost agony, the passion part, the dagger in that cry was remorse. In effect, David was saying, I've slain my son. I have wounded my son Absalom from his childhood with my own lust. I held out his own temptation right in his way. If he rebelled, who should blame him? I, David, drove Absalom to rebel. It was his father's hand that stabbed Absalom. 
through the heart. Oh, Absalom, I murdered my son, Absalom. And if you want to read on in the 19th chapter, it says that the folks came back from the war and they did not come in triumph. They came tiptoeing into town. It says in chapter 19 that they came not in triumph or victory. They came in shame and silence. Why? Because the palace was in mourning. Black is everywhere. Black is draped on the palace. And they've heard his despair. And they come quietly into the city. Unbearable. But even though one would experience the unbearable, listen to me, the unbearable is not unending. It's time for Joab to do something. He does the most difficult thing that anybody can do. He rolls up his sleeves and he confronts David. He marches into the palace he goes up to the chambers where David has cloistered himself and isolated himself, and he walks in and he confronts David. That confrontation is found in chapter 19, verse 5. Then Joab came into the house of the king and said, Today you have covered with shame the faces of all your servants, who today have saved your life and the lives of your sons and daughters, the lives of your wives and the lives of your concubines, by loving those who hate you and by hating those who love you. For you have shown today that princes and servants are nothing to you. For I know this day that if Absalom were alive, and all of us were dead, you would be pleased. Now therefore arise, go out and speak kindly to your servants, for I swear by the Lord, if you do not go out, surely not a man will pass the night with you, and this will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from your youth until now. He said three things, get them. He said, David, wake up, face the truth. Don't let this sorrow, this tragedy, this unbearable situation blind you to the reality of life, to the truth. He said, David, reject self-pity. All your thoughts are on you and upon your son. When the fact is, David, you never had a relationship with your son. Face reality. Stop feeling sorry for yourselves. And he said, three, you have an obligation to those who love you. There are people out there in the street who love you more than your own son loves you. Now you need to get up and get on with life. You need to get past this unalterable, unbearable situation. You need to understand that there is meaning to life beyond grief. You need to understand that there's a responsibility that you have to other people who are awaiting you. Now get up from there and get out in the street. And he did. And he got past this grief to the meaning beyond it. And he went out in the street and the people came to him. And he counseled them. Now all of that leads to the point of this sermon. 
What, how, what do you do? How can you get ready for the unbearable? How do you get ready for the unbearable situations that come? Most of life is filled with routine. And most of us feel a certain security and comfort. But what about the unbearable? How do you get ready for that? I'll give you four answers to that question. I want you to jot them down, then we're through. First, you need a walk that's realistic. Some of us live our lives in denial. Some of us live our lives in a fantasy world, in denial. We, we just will not face reality. That's what happens when a person knows there's something wrong with him physically, but if I don't go to the doctor, if I don't find out the truth, maybe everything will get better. Maybe everything will be all right. Some of us live in denial. Some of us refuse to face the truth that we are not immunized against the unbearable. I've not got too good a news for you. Now listen. You may be next. When we leave this place of relative security and comfort, the fellowship of our, fel our friends, it just may be that you'll enter in this very day a situation that is unbearable. You may be next. We're not immunized against it. We need a walk that's realistic. Second, you need a friend who is honest. Somebody who will help you get a focus on, get a read on reality. That's what the author of the book of Ecclesiastes was talking about when he said two are better than one because if you have two, one, your friend is able to help you see the truth, the reality is able to help you get a focus, a, a, a perspective on things as they really are. You and I need to begin to cultivate a significant other who will tell us the truth. It may be our spouse, it may be some loved one, it may be a person down the street, but you need somebody who will help you get a read on reality. Ernest Campbell tells about the two guys that met in college and became friends. They had the same value system and the same life goals. They were going to enter the ministry after uh, uh, their graduate school. And, and they did. And, and time and distance separated them. One lived on the West Coast and the other lived on the East Coast. But they maintained friendships and, and corresponded the great distance. One night, one of the men heard that his friend's daughter had taken her life. And so he got on the phone and he, because of the time deferential and the distance, he knew it was late, but he knew his friend would be up. And he called his friend and his friend answered the phone and he said, Bob, this is Fred. I know right now you're pacing up and down and you're asking yourself, why did I do that that I should not have done? Or why didn't I do that which I should have done? And I say to you in the name of Jesus Christ, stop. And he hung up.
How wonderful it is to have a friend that we can trust. Like Joab, who helps us get a perspective on reality in the unbearable moment. It was about 1978 and I was pastoring in Tulia, Texas. Our services were on the radio. It was Father's Day. And I was preaching from this story, not this sermon, this brand new sermon, but I was preaching from this story. About two weeks later, I got a letter in the mail from Tulsa, Oklahoma. It was handwritten in triplicate. It was one of those triplicate business forms that people, you know, when they make an order and they fill it out and you get one copy for the customer and one for your file, etc. It was in triplicate form and it was written in hand. And the man said, I was coming through your part of the country and I was on my way to a, a, a meeting, to, to a family reunion in, in, eastern Oklahoma, in eastern New Mexico, and he said, I was just dialing the radio and I heard you preaching. And he said, I, for some reason, he said, I'm not given to preachers, but he said, for some reason, I decided to listen. And he said, you preached on David and Absalom. Then you could tell the ragah began. He said, sir, I'm like David. He said, I have an Absalom. And my Absalom, he said, is the product of my own neglect, sometimes abuse. He said, sir, I made a commitment through tears as I listened driving down the highway that I was coming back to Tulsa and find my son. I request your prayers. I discarded that letter just a few months ago, as a matter of fact. It sure is good to have somebody help us get a read on life. We need a friend who will be honest. Third, we need a Savior who is reliable. The older I get, the harder it is for me to understand how people can endure what they have to endure in life without a savior. I suppose there's a certain kind of stoicism that allows us to grit our teeth and go with our head unbowed, bloody but unbowed. A kind of stoicism that says, let God empty his quiver of problems and trials upon me. I'm big enough to take it. But for the life of me, I'm not able to understand how one can endure the unbearable of life without a Savior. Come to the cross. Come to the Savior who endures, who endured everything that you will ever endure. He went to the backside of hell. And he's been there. And so Naomi said, I went out full, I came back empty. I went out with a husband and two sons, I came back with neither. But I came back with El Shaddai. I came back with God Almighty. And the word there, El Shaddai, means the one who is sufficient. And she was saying, in effect, 
I went out with everything. I came back with nothing except the one who is sufficient. We need the one who is sufficient. And we need a faith that cannot be shaken. Now, I'm not talking about a middle acceptance of a historical truth. I'm not talking about a Sunday morning church attendance. I'm talking about a faith that's riveted in God, a faith that's anchored in the rock, a faith that stands upon a certainty. So when the storm comes and the unbearable comes, there is this rootedness, there is this strength, there is this anchor in a faith that cannot be shaken. Helen Rosevere was a missionary in the Congo, in the Congo uprising. The Mau Mau tribe came, much like happened in Rwanda. As a matter of fact, Rwanda and the Congo are neighboring nations. And these thugs, these hoodlums of the Mau Mau tribe came into the city where Helen Rosevere was serving God. And they gang-raped her. They raped her again and again and again. And Helen Rosevere, as she was recovering from this unbearable situation, got real close to Jesus. And one day, he spoke to her in a quiet voice. Helen, would you thank me for trusting you with this experience, even if I never tell you why? Will you trust him for the unbearable experience, for trusting you with the unbearable experience, if he never tells you why? then you have a faith that's unshakable. Let's pray together. We need a walk that's realistic. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. Face reality today. We need a faith. We need a walk that's realistic. We need a friend who will tell us the truth about ourselves and about life. We need a Savior who is unreliable, a God who never changes. And we need a faith that will not be moved. Asking for it now. That is, ask the Savior for it. In the early service, a young man came forward going through divorce. He said, I'm, I feel like David, but I want a faith that will endure. After we've prayed together, we'll give an invitation for you to find the Savior who is reliable, for you to come to the faith that's unshakable because you've faced the realistic. Our Father, grant us 
in this moment the kind of decision that would glorify and honor you and make our lives from now on a different kind of life. For I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Now in the spirit of prayer, our choir is going to begin to lead us in song. Stand with me, and if you feel led of God to come, step out and come while we sing.